From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, what we know and don't about the classified documents from Joe Biden's garage and later Russia's shadow fleet. Then this just in, Illinois politician retires without a scandal. Secretary of State Jesse White leaves office after almost half a century in politics. And John Hendrickson's new memoir on going through life with a stutter. You're trying to quiet this voice inside you telling you it's better not to talk at all. First, our newscast, it's Saturday, January 14, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. House Republicans are moving forward with investigations into the discovery of classified documents tied to President Biden. The House Judiciary Committee is asking the Justice Department to turn over any records linked to the discoveries by the end of the month. The probe comes a day after the attorney general appointed a special counsel to examine the matter, as NPR's Windsor Johnston reports. Committee Chairman Jim Jordan says the panel is conducting oversight of the department's actions. Jordan and other congressional Republicans are also questioning when the department first came to learn about the existence of the documents and whether it actively concealed them from the public in the days before the midterm elections. The DOJ escalated its review on Thursday after a second batch of classified documents were discovered at the president's home in Wilmington, Delaware. The first set of documents were discovered last November in an office in Washington, D.C. that Biden used after his time as vice president. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. The House Oversight Committee is also investigating. Ahead of the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday cleanup underway in parts of the South hit by Thursday's deadly storms. Troy Public Radio's Kyle Gassett reports on the devastating tornado that struck Selma, Alabama, one of the cities important to the civil rights movement. Much of the city and historic downtown were covered in debris and downed power lines, requiring cleanup to continue into the weekend. Faya Rose Ture, who organizes an annual march on MLK Day, says the storm and its destruction won't stop the parade or dilute King's message. I'm hoping that people in commemorating and thinking about Dr. King will recommit not to a dream, just recommit to democracy and the right to vote for all citizens. The march to the foot of the historic Edmund Pettus Bridge is planned for Monday in Selma. From PR News, I'm Kyle Gassett. Iran today announced the execution of a British-Iranian dual national after he was convicted of spying for British intelligence. And Pierce Peter Kenyon reports former Iranian defense official Ali Reza Akbari had been convicted of spying for British intelligence. Ali Reza Akbari's execution was reported in multiple Iranian media outlets, and news of his death drew an angry response from Britain. Britain's foreign secretary said, quote, this will not stand unchallenged. Iranian authorities provided no evidence for the charge that Akbari was a source for MI6, Britain's secret intelligence service. The execution comes as Iran struggles to quell widespread public protests demanding the end of Iran's cleric-led regime. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. The execution of Akbari is drawing anger from the British government. Britain's Foreign Secretary James Cleverly says it will not stand unchallenged and he summoned Iran's charge d'affaires. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. 
Students in Melrose might have their long holiday weekend extended. WBUR's Fausto Menard reports the city's public school teachers have voted to strike. The job action was approved by over 99% of Melrose Education Association members who voted Friday afternoon. As it stands now, the teachers will walk off the job and classes will be canceled on Tuesday if a deal on a new contract is not reached before then. Teachers have been working without a contract since June. They're seeking more pay and better working conditions. The mayor of Melrose says the school committee will continue to negotiate in good faith until a deal is reached. Boston Common now features the Embrace Memorial. Yesterday, the sculpture was dedicated in honor of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and his wife Coretta. They began their relationship in Boston when they were both going to school here. At the dedication, their granddaughter, 14-year-old Yolanda Renee King, said she is impressed with the new public art. I love this monument. I also see the love and strength and unity in these hands and how they symbolize a beautiful marriage and partnership. And it was one that changed the world. The embrace does not officially open for another couple of weeks. It can be seen at a distance, but fences still surround it. Several Jamaica Plain streets are flooded this morning after a water main break. The Boston Fire Department says the break occurred on Heath Street. The floodings closed parts of Heath, Waldron, and Minden Streets. New Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey is kicking off a year of service this morning. She's joining 8th grade Project 351 ambassadors. They represent each of Massachusetts' 351 cities and towns. The kickoff is at Faneuil Hall, and it's followed by service projects throughout the Boston area in the afternoon. It's 34 degrees in Boston today. A bit of rain could mix with some snow, little or no accumulation expected, and temperatures reaching the upper 30s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thank you for joining us. President Biden, President Biden, who'd called Donald Trump irresponsible when he saw photos of classified documents at the Trump residence in Mar-a-Lago, had some explaining to do on his own this week when it was revealed that some other classified documents ended up at Joe Biden's home as well as his former office. Here's what he said earlier this week. I was briefed about this discovery and surprised to learn that there were any government records that were taken there to that office. But I don't know what's in the documents. I've, my lawyers have not suggested I ask what documents they were. I've turned over the boxes. They've turned over the boxes to the archives. NPR senior editor and correspondent Ron Elvin joins us. Ron, thanks so much for being with us. Good to be with you, Scott. How does the administration sell the argument that, that Trump taking classified items with him when he leaves office is a scandal? But President Biden keeping classified documents off government property is just an oversight. Tough sell. That's the line they're taking. And it surely sounds like classic hypocrisy, doesn't it? So maybe it's the only line they can take at this point. And maybe in the end, it turns out even to be largely factual. There's still a lot we don't know. But we do know 
The first batch of these documents was discovered before the November elections last fall, and the second on December 20th. So yes, the National Archives was properly notified, and the material was returned, and the Department of Justice was called in. That's all right and proper. But it was not until CBS News broke the story this week that the matter became public and that we learned about the second batch of documents, all of which looks bad, and it is bad. So now there's a special counsel, a man who has served many Republican officeholders in his career, and we expect to learn more from him. Ron, you've covered many administrations. Is it possible that every vice president and, and, and vice president, perhaps innocently, if maybe thoughtlessly, leaves office with some classified documents that are inadvertently in their possession? Inadvertently? Sure, that's possible. Has it been done for less than innocent reasons? Hard to deny that's likely, too. Uh, not all classified documents are created equal. Many are of less serious nature. You know, the big difference, though, is in how people who get caught react to being exposed. Do they own up to it? Do they give the stuff back? Or do they have a long series of denials? Do they go to court? Do they fight it at every turn, as Trump did? Do they insist that it's all still theirs and they want it back, as Trump has? You know, this whole thing just diverts attention from what Donald Trump did and some of the other stories about the former president, and also from other stories in the news, such as George Santos, the freshman congressman with the imaginary resume. Treasury Secretary Yellen warns congressional leaders the U.S. is going to reach its borrowing limit by next Thursday. Far-right Republicans oppose raising the debt limit. What's going to happen? Oh, we may hit the limit this week technically, uh, but isn't as in the past, the Treasury can use various accounting methods to forestall an actual default for months, probably until June. In recent years, Republicans have used the debt limit as leverage when they had partial control of Congress. The last time Republicans took the debt ceiling to the brink was in 2013 when they insisted on repealing Obamacare. Uh, two years before that, they did it to try to force deficit reduction. Both times, Obama resisted and a negotiated deal raised the limit. And we can expect another go-round over that same ground this spring. Consumer prices fell by a tenth of a percent small number but significant? Yes, and in fact, this could be called the most important story of the week on some level. Uh, inflation continues to ease, now down to 6.5 percent. It's still high, still painful for many, but down from the peak and headed in the right direction. And it may be enough for the Fed to slow down the rate hikes that have been imposed this past year to gain control over inflation and that, in turn, could ease fears of recession. NPR's Ron Elving, thanks so much. Thank you, Scott. A ban by the European Union on Russian oil that went into effect late last year over the war in Ukraine is forcing Russia to look further afield to sell its fuel, but transporting the oil has become an increasing challenge for Russia, so it's having to turn to a fleet of tankers willing to bust sanctions. NPR's Jackie Northam reports. Before Russia invaded Ukraine, Europe was by far and away the largest customer for its oil, even bigger than Russia's domestic market. Pipelines, ports, oil fields in West Siberia, everything has been oriented towards selling to Europe. But now it's being forced into a much smaller market, much further away. Craig Kennedy is with the Davis Center for Russian-Eurasian Studies at Harvard and spent years in Moscow. He says the Kremlin has been scrambling to come up with ways to get crude to those other markets. 
but it would take years to build a series of pipelines to Asia and elsewhere. And so they realized we are going to be stuck with seaborne exports. 80% of our oil has to reach its end customers by sea, and that means tankers. But there was a problem. Russia faces a shortage of tankers willing to transport the oil. Its own fleet isn't big enough. Many Western companies have refused to carry Russian crude since the war in Ukraine. And the U.S. and its allies implemented a plan that would prevent tankers from transporting Russian oil unless it came at or below $60 a barrel for its own brand of crude. Right now, prices are below that. But that could change. So the Kremlin has been building up a network known as a shadow fleet. The shadow fleet is a group of ships. It's difficult to, to estimate exactly how many uh, ships there are, but probably between two and 300. Eric Bruchhausen is with Poten & Partners, a brokerage and consulting firm specializing in energy and maritime transportation. A lot of those ships have been acquired in recent months in anticipation of this EU ban. And the sole purpose of these ships is to move Russian crude just in case it would be illegal for regular owners to do so. Most vessels in the shadow fleets are owned by offshore companies in countries with more lenient shipping rules, like Panama, Liberia, and the Marshall Islands, says Basil Karadzis, CEO of New York-based Karadzis Marine Advisors, a shipping finance advisory firm. He says the owners have limited exposure to U.S. or EU governments or banks, and so their fear of sanctions is limited. And enforcement is difficult. Karadza says the risk-reward ratio is favorable to the owners of the shadow fleet tankers. If you can make a 10 to $20 per barrel spread and the vessel holds a million barrels of oil, you can make like you know, five ten million million profit per voyage. If you do it five times a year, you can see the economics of that. Karadzis says shadow fleets have long been used by Iran and Venezuela to evade sanctions. He says shadow fleet tankers tend to be old and junky. But since the start of the Ukraine war, they've become highly valuable because of the cargo. In February 2022, a 20-year-old vessel was more or less valued at close to scrap. Now these vessels are worth uh, 40 million apiece. So at the very least, I mean, uh, uh, Putin gave to the ship owners a very nice present. Putin will need plenty more shadow fleet tankers if the price of Russian oil rises past $60 a barrel and legitimate ships are then banned from carrying the crude. But with such a highly lucrative business and a small chance of getting caught, more tankers could be lured into joining the shadow fleet. Jackie Northam, NPR News. In his How to Psalmodize, Charles Simic described the poem, It is a piece of meat carried by a burglar to distract a watchdog. Charles Simic, a former poet laureate of the United States, Pulitzer Prize winner, MacArthur genius and professor, died this week at the age of 84. His poems could read like brilliant, urgent bulletins posted on the sides of the human heart. He was born in Belgrade in what was then the Kingdom of Yugoslavia, just in time for World War II, amid the click of Nazi jackboots. As Charles recalled in his 1988 poem, Two Dogs, a little white dog ran into the street and got entangled with the soldier's feet. The kick made him fly as if he had wings. That's what I keep seeing. 
night coming down, a dog with wings. Had a small non-speaking part in a bloody epic, he wrote in a poem he called Cameo Appearance. I was one of the bombed and fleeing humanity. I think of that line to this day when I see columns of human beings in Ukraine, Ethiopia, Syria, fleeing their homes, history, and loved ones in their one pair of shoes. Each of those persons has poetry inside. Charles Simic didn't hear English until he came to the United States in Oak Park, Illinois, outside Chicago, as a teenager. He went to the same high school as Ernest Hemingway. Lightning can strike twice and became a copy kid at the Chicago Sun-Times as he went to night school at the University of Chicago, and he learned from the city. The city wrapped up in smoke where factory workers, their faces covered with grime, waited for buses. An immigrant's paradise, you might say, Charles remembered for the Paris Review. Chicago, he said, gave me my first American identity. Asked, why do you write? He answered, I write to annoy God, to make death laugh. Charles Simic lived, laughed a lot, and taught at the University of New Hampshire while he wrote poems prolifically and gorgeously about life, death, love, animals, insects, food, and what kindles the imagination. As he wrote in The Initiate, the sky was full of racing clouds and tall buildings, whirling and whirling silently. In that whole city, you could hear a pin drop. Believe me, I thought I heard a pin drop, and I went looking for it. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 818 and ahead on Weekend Edition, you'll get the latest on the pollution caused by the California storms. Also, John Hendrickson discusses his new memoir, Life on Delay. It details his struggles with stuttering. That and more coming up on Weekend Edition. And you can keep checking on the news with WBUR at your convenience as you go about your day. Tap to listen on the WBUR mobile app, whatever you're up to this weekend. It is 35 degrees in Boston, a chance of some rain mixing with snow, little or no accumulation expected. Highs today in the upper 30s. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. More at PlymouthRock.com. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. House Republicans are moving forward with investigations into the discovery of classified documents tied to President Biden. They're asking the Justice Department to turn over any records linked to the, to the uh, discoveries by the end of the month. Cleanup efforts are underway in parts of the South, battered by Thursday's deadly storms that spun off suspected tornadoes. At least nine people were killed and thousands remain without power today in Alabama and Georgia. And more stormy weather is expected in California this weekend. And a series of storms has been walloping the state since late last month, causing flooding, mudslides, and power outages. At least 19 people have been killed. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from American Cruise Lines, cruising the Maine coast where travelers can experience a lobster bake and explore New England's maritime heritage. Learn more at americancruiselines.com slash NPR. And from DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. California is being hit by a punishing parade of storms. Raw sewage has gushed through neighborhoods, flooded roadways, poured into San Francisco Bay. Officials urge residents not to swim in the bay or even jump in puddles. Leslie McClurg from member station KQED explains the toxic disaster has revealed deficiencies in an aging sewer system. The rain that fell in recent weeks was like a fire hose blasting debris through neighborhoods, along roadways, and out to the bay. Mary Spicer steps through a heap of garbage washed up on a beach in Oakland. I gotta watch my stuff. Oh, so corrosive. This is an Nabisco Easy Cheese. Spicer tosses the rusty can. She usually spends the morning kayaking along the estuary, but right now she won't even touch the water. I'm really upset. I'm, I'm very angry, and I'm really... This garbage, that sewage, goes directly into our most precious resource, our bay, our water, our ocean, and I think it's almost criminal to ignore it. At least 22 million gallons of raw sewage have spilled into the environment since the storms began. That's enough to fill at least 33 Olympic swimming pools, and that's just the tally from official reports. There's utilities that have had large unauthorized discharges that haven't even reported yet. Eileen White is the executive officer of San Francisco's Water Quality Control Board. I think they're still in the response mode. They're getting ready for the next storm. White says the pipes that carry sewage from homes to treatment facilities are cracked and riddled with holes that allow rainwater to seep in. Oakland recently recorded its wettest day on record, overwhelming multiple points at the system. Andrea Pook is a spokesperson for the East Bay Municipal Utility District. The huge influx of rainwater exceeded our ability to move and treat that wastewater. It overflowed before it even got to our system. Nearby in Castro Valley, residents reported wastewater backing up into their drains and toilet paper flooding their yards. To replace pipes in that community of just 65,000 people, it's estimated to cost around $500 million. Raw sewage contains pathogens, bacteria, and viruses that can make humans and wildlife sick. Often people don't think about replacing pipes until it's too late. Pipes are underground. They're not sexy. They're out of sight, out of mind. Sejal Choksi Chu is the executive director of Baykeeper, a local environmental group. City councils just don't tend to prioritize funding maintenance of these pipes and making sure that they're upgraded and maintained properly. She says preventing another disaster requires multiple fixes. First, residents need to repair private lines. Then cities need to update old underground municipal clay pipes. And finally, outdated wastewater treatment plants need to be overhauled. Just last summer, the Bay Area experienced an unprecedented red tide, leading to massive fish kills during a heat wave. It was likely driven by utilities discharging too much treated sewage into the Bay. So we've got 
wastewater treatment plants responsible for both of these really big problems. And I'm really hoping that this is a wake-up call for the wastewater industry and for the local government agencies to say we need to invest in better infrastructure around the Bay Area. Choksi Chu says the neighborhoods that are most susceptible to flooding are those closest to the Bay Shore where the sewage is discharged, often low-income communities of color. Scientists say torrential rain events mixed with harsh droughts are the new normal, and utilities must prepare for ongoing climate whiplash. For NPR News, I'm Leslie McClurg in Oakland. Little good news now. From the massive omnibus spending bill Congress passed in the lame duck session, there's legislation now to finally curtail something that sounds like a good idea, donating land to the government to maintain open spaces, but has ended up costing taxpayers... A lot of money every year. Peter Elkind covers government and business for ProPublica and joins us now. Thanks so much for being with us. Good to be with you, Scott. Syndicated conservation easements. I know everybody knows what they are, but just remind us if you could. Conservation easements provide a very generous tax break, and it's an incentive to conserve valuable open land from development. And uh, in return, it provides a very generous charitable tax deduction. So that was the concept behind conservation easement donations. What happened? Over time, an industry sprung up, mostly starting in Georgia, that exploited the tax deduction and turned it into a profit-making venture, a very valuable profit-making venture. These promoters would buy up tracts of land that were sitting idle Um, which really had very little in the way of real conservation value. And they would claim that if it was developed for maybe a a luxury resort or a solar mine or a gravel mine, um, that it was actually worth 10 or 20 times what they had just paid for it months earlier. And then they would attract rich investors by dangling offers of a big tax break with them, and they'd divide up the charitable deduction. What are some examples that stand out to you? One is an abandoned golf course outside of Greenville, South Carolina. It, it had sat vacant for a decade. It was next to a trailer park. And finally, the owners cut the asking price to about $5.5 million, and they sold it in 2016 to syndicated easement promoters, who then attracted investors. They claimed this was the perfect site for single-family home development. And this land that they bought for around $5.5 million was suddenly worth $40 million, eight times what they paid for it. Bingo, the investors got $4 in deductions or so for every dollar they invested. They made a profit. The promoters made big fees. And a key part for all this was appraisals, where you know, appraiser would come in and make this massively inflated assessment of what the value was based on a sort of hypothetical notion of a development of some kind that was very improbable. And it was sort of in plain sight, but it became a growing problem as, you know, as sort of clever promoters, and these are financial advisors, these are lawyers, these are accountants, began pitching these deals and the industry got bigger and bigger and more of them took place. And very quickly, you know, by 2016 or so, the amount of deductions taken for syndicated deals, which are questionable, greatly exceeded the amount of deductions taken for traditional deals. And how will this new legislation affect what's going on? Well, the new legislation, they basically say that it bars any tax deduction, any charitable deduction for a contribution that's more than two and a half times the amount a partner invested. So that basically allows them to deduct what they put into the, into the deal, but not make a profit from it. Why did 
Members of Congress catch this and not the IRS. Basically, the syndicators and their investors defied the IRS. I mean, usually the IRS saying this is a scam shuts something down. But there was so much money involved here that it didn't work. And these deals are so profitable that a lot of these partnerships routinely establish special audit reserves to fight the IRS of as much as $1 million. So on the, on the IRS level, the IRS was kind of outmanned and, and the profits were, you know, the risk of being audited, the risk of losing an audit case, the investors and the promoters were betting it was, it was worth taking the gamble. And ultimately, the IRS commissioner begged in congressional testimony, begged Congress to help and do what the IRS was unable to do. Peter Elkind of ProPublica, thanks so much for being with us. Good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Here's a job to relish. Oscar Mayer will pay you to drive a giant hot dog across the country. We have buns and buns of fun on the road. Buns and buns tomorrow. On Weekend Edition Sunday, Ayesha catches up with the former Wienermobile driver, Tune in by telling your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. Jesse White retired this week as Illinois Secretary of State. Retired in Illinois. He wasn't indicted or defeated. He's just 88 years old and has been Secretary of State since 1999. He is the longest serving person ever in that office, the first black person to hold that office. And as popular a public official as the state that's produced Abraham Lincoln, Barack Obama, and Oprah Winfrey, for that matter, has ever had. He's been a champion of youth and literacy programs and tumbling. We'll get to that. Secretary of State White joins us from Chicago. Thanks so much for being with us. Scott, glad to be on board. You know, I am looking at my mother's state ID card. She didn't have a driver's license like me, but it's the Secretary of State that issues those ID cards. And it just occurred to me, there are millions of people who will be looking at their driver's licenses or state ID cards and wondering, wait, why isn't Jesse White's name here? <laughs> well, I've had the great pleasure of serving as the Illinois Secretary of State for the past 24 years. And I want to thank the people of this, this wonderful state for allowing me to serve. But prior to becoming the Secretary of State, I was a state lawmaker. And then I was a cook kind of recorded deeds for six years. Played professional baseball, jumped out of airplanes, taught school, and coach a team called Jesse White Tumblers. And yet I'm not 150 years old. Let me follow up one by one. Responsibilities of Secretary of State does not include elections, unlike many other states, but it does include driver's licenses. And let me put this nicely. A couple of your predecessors made the most of that, didn't they? Yes, they did. Matter of fact, one ended up going to prison. Yeah, and and, and the other had shoeboxes full of cash discovered after he died, Paul Powell. Well, when I buy my shoes, I buy them in bags. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to ask, because in periodic surveys, Illinois, I don't have to tell you this, is usually number one or two in the nation for having the most, uh, you know, in indicted and convicted public officials. Is there something in Illinois that lends itself to that? What's your feeling after all these years? Well, sometimes they yield to temptation, and uh, I've been in office for almost well, over 50 years, to be exact. And uh, I believe that when you take on a job, you should take on the responsibility that goes with it. And you have to be at your duty station every day on time, discharge your duties to the best of your ability. 
And honesty in government is a thing that I pride myself on. And I just think it's a violation of all laws of human decency for an individual who has been elected to an office and yet is motivated by greed. Mm. We live in a time of such political division, racial and socioeconomic division. How have you managed to be such a popular figure with people from all parties? Well, I, I'm a personal person. I see individuals on the street or in the store, on the bus or wherever. I speak to them. And then I also give my personal telephone number to individuals. So if they have a problem, I want to be able to assist them. When you take on a job, you should take on responsibility that goes with it. And then when you ask individuals to come out to support you, you should be there with them no matter what their problem is. Yeah. Secretary White, I have been to so many functions all over Illinois, and the Jesse White tumblers are there. Tell us about this program and how it's changed lives. Well, when I was a youngster, working for the Chicago Park District, uh, my park supervisor asked me to put on a gym show. And for the one gym show in December 1959 came this team called the Jesse White Tumblers. We've had over 18,500 young people to come to the program. I have strict rules and regulations. Young people have to be in school on time every day and have what they've been buying to get the best education possible. And then they have to obey my rules and regulations pertaining to how they feel about their fellow man and woman. Cannot dislike anyone because of race, creed, or color. And then, of course, we want our young people to respect the laws that have been established by this country and be a positive force in society. I remember being at the opening of the new bakery of Eli's Chicago Cheesecake, and the tumblers were there. Scott, they had a, had a cake that was about uh, 10 feet in, in diameter and about uh, 8 feet tall, and we did a somersault over the cake. It was called the over-the-cake routine. I remember that. Do the Jesse White tumblers go on, even though you're retiring? I'm at the headquarters right now. As, as we speak, we have a center called the Jesse White Community Center in Fieldhouse. Yeah. Uh, anything that I think we do here at the center, we're involved with what is called tough love. We love our young people, but we're going to be tough on them. You have a motto in public life, don't you? Yes, I do. Do something good for someone every day. That's how I run my life. Those things and more have helped me to be where I am today, and that, that will continue to follow me until I'm no longer here. Jesse White, Illinois, now former Secretary of State. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Scott. And you're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Israel's new far-right government, led by Prime Minister Netanyahu, is facing protests over its plans to weaken the judiciary. Top legal figures are calling the proposal a threat to democracy and say it could also affect rights for Palestinians. A former prime minister is among those who urge Israelis to take to the streets tonight. NPR's Daniel Estrin reports from Tel Aviv. Israel's new justice minister this week published the government's proposal for redefining the country's system of checks and balances. Part of the plan would give parliament the power to overrule the Supreme Court when it annuls laws it deems unconstitutional. This plan has drawn unprecedented protest from Israel's legal community, the attorney general, all of Israel's previous attorneys general, 
and current Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Esther Chayut, who said in a speech this week the plan would crush the justice system. She said if the plan is implemented, Israel's democratic identity would suffer a fatal blow. But Israel's right wing has long seen the Supreme Court as too activist, overprotective of Palestinian rights, and too lenient on allowing African asylum seekers status in the country. Ultra-Orthodox members of the government want more religious influence in the law. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu defended his government's plans in a video message. He said the new government won a clear mandate in elections to enact its plan. And he called for calm. He said the idea is to rebalance Israel's system of checks and balances. U.S. lawyer Alan Dershowitz told Israeli Army Radio that he warned Netanyahu personally against the plan. Civil liberties and minority rights are in danger. Dershowitz spoke after thousands marched in downtown Tel Aviv last weekend, the first major Israeli gathering protesting the new government. If I were in Israel, I would be joining the protest. Another demonstration is planned in Tel Aviv tonight. But protesters are divided. Some just want to focus on the judiciary. Others want to focus on the occupation of the West Bank. Avner Gavariahu of the left-wing group Breaking the Silence spoke at the first protest but won't be speaking at today's. He says demonstrating in support of Israel's judiciary isn't enough when Palestinians under occupation have unequal rights to Jewish citizens and the government seeks to deepen its military occupation over Palestinians. Part of our challenge is going to be how do we make sure that the only conversation isn't only about preserving, you know, rights for Jews, but also convincing the center left that it's not only the right thing to do, but it's also in their interest to address the elephant in the room that they have been systematically ignoring. Tensions are rising. A far-right lawmaker called to arrest opposition lawmakers leading the protest movement. Far-right minister Itamar Ben-Gvir wants tough policing at today's protest. He wants to ban protesters from carrying the Palestinian flag, a move the attorney general opposes. Police say they're concerned about public disturbances at the protest. Former Prime Minister Yair Lapid says his children will be demonstrating. On TV, he called on every citizen to protest against what he called an attempt to overturn democracy. Netanyahu's justice minister says he's determined to carry out his plans to change the judiciary. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The Melrose public school system could soon be dealing with a teacher strike. The job action was approved by over 99% of Melrose Education Association members who voted yesterday. The teachers plan to walk off the job and classes will be canceled on Tuesday if a deal on a new contract is not reached before then. Melrose teachers have been working without a contract since June. They're seeking more pay and better working conditions. 
Demolition work on the Government Center garage in Boston is causing some disruptions for MBTA passengers this weekend. The Orange Line is closed between Back Bay Station and North Station. On the Green Line, shuttle buses are replacing trains between North Station and Government Center. It's 34 degrees in Boston, a chance of some rain mixing with snow today, little or no accumulation expected. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. Maplewood Country Day Camp, family run for 57 years with children's programs designed to teach life skills, putting the fun in fundamentals. Maplewoodyearround.com. And the Handel and Haydn Society. Feel the adrenaline-packed power of Beethoven's Heroic Symphony, January 20th and 22nd at Symphony Hall, handelandhaydn.org. Hi, I'm Lauren Summer. I cover climate change at NPR, so I'm particularly interested in the surge of interest in electric cars. If your next car is going to be electric, be sure to donate your old car to this station. You'll be doing your part to lower your carbon footprint, and we'll turn your old car into more coverage of everything that matters to you. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Noom, a personalized program based in psychology to help people understand their motivations, change their habits, and lead healthier lives. Learn more at Noom, N-O-O-M dot com. From Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Some of the most celebrated and unusual movies of the last several decades have all played one place in particular, Park City, Utah. Can I tell you something personally? Yeah, yeah. You know, actually, there is a message from Cindy on the machine. Something about Little Mrs. Sunshine. Sunshine. What? Little Miss Sunshine? Yeah. What? Get out. Sorry, man. Okay. Get out! Sex, lies, and videotape. Little Miss Sunshine. Get out! Just three of the movies that made big debuts at the Sundance Film Festival in Park City over the years. And Sundance is back in person next week after pandemic disruptions. Kim Yutani is director of programming for the festival. She joins us now. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. What makes a Sundance movie? Ooh, that's such a, a tricky question to answer. You you played the, the clip from Little Miss Sunshine, and I think that is considered to be one of the quintessential Sundance films. But what I think is kind of the current that runs through all of our films is that there's a kind of freshness to each of these projects. There will be something distinctive about that work that kind of shines through. I'm told there's 16,000 submissions for this year's festival. How do you choose? I mean, can you even see 16,000 submissions? Obviously, 16,000 submissions is an incredible number. Um, But we have a, a team of programmers who watch every single film that we consider. And we get to the point where, you know, we end up with 110 feature films, 65 short films. The competition is incredibly tough. 
What should we watch for this year in your judgment? I would start with some of our documentaries about people who you you know, but maybe you haven't seen them quite in this light. I'm thinking about films like Still, a Michael J. Fox movie, Pretty Baby, Brooke Shields. We have a documentary about Steph Curry, and this takes us into the home life, into you know the inner workings of Steph Curry. Steph Curry, the basketball player. Exactly. When, when you say inner workings, you don't just mean his great three-point shot. <laughs> yes, uh, it really dimensionalizes him in an exciting way. What, what feature films should we be on the lookout for? Oh, there's so much to choose from. Um, one of the films that is going to really affect people is a film called Magazine Dreams. It is a deep character study of a character we I have never seen on screen before. This is a, a character played by Jonathan Majors. He's an aspiring bodybuilder dealing with some mental health issues. It's just one of these internal performances, but also a very physical performance too. Sundance is known for dramas, but I also think that we have a lot of lighter fare too that we're excited about. We're showing a film called Past Lives by um, Celine Song. It's just this finely calibrated relationship drama um, I think people are going to be very impressed by this one. I can see why almost everybody would want to go to Sundance. But do you have any thoughts about whether cinema as a collective experience, a bunch of people in the same theater watching some a story unfold on a big screen, with the exception this year of, let's say, Avatar and Top Gun 2, is, is that experience dwindling, disappearing from our lives? I certainly hope not. I mean, this is why I think it's so important that we are having an in-person festival this year. And the thing that I hear most from, from everybody I talk to in anticipation of the festival is everybody's excited to be in theaters again, to see movies on, on big screens. It's just magical. And so I'm hoping that this year's Sundance is going to really revitalize the, the hope in theatrical movie going. Kim Yutani is Director of Programming at the Sundance Film Festival. It starts next week. Thank you. Good time seems to be in store. I hope so. Thank you so much for having me. We're going to interview a writer who begins his new book with these words. Nearly every decision in my life has been shaped by my struggle to speak. John Hendrickson wrote a story for The Atlantic in 2019 about then-presidential candidate Joe Biden's life with stuttering. John Hendrickson stutters himself. His article sparked an outpouring of reaction, including from others who stutter. He has put his experience, those of others, and lots of reflection, recollection, and thought into life on delay, making peace with a stutter. John Hendrickson joins us from New York. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me, Scott. It's an honor. You write, and, and I hope you can help us understand, because you write so piercingly about it, the feel of a stutter. We hear halting speech, but at one point you say it, it feels almost like claustrophobia. 
There are many different types of stuttering, and they all feel a little different from the repetitions to long, painful blocks in which you can't get through the first part of a word. Mm -hmm. When those blocks are happening, you often have trouble breathing. But all of that's only part of it. You're really battling is the mental side of it. And you're trying to quiet this voice inside you telling you it's better not to talk at all. It takes a lot of work and a lot of time and effort to get to a place of just being okay with participating in conversation. Yeah. As you and I uh, talk to each other in 2023, do we really know why anyone, do you know why you go through life with a stutter? Only since around the turn of the millennium have researchers and experts understood this to be a neurological disorder with a large genetic component. For decades and centuries prior to that, people thought it was a simple manifestation of anxiety, nervousness. Some children are able to, quote unquote, rewire those neural pathways with therapy at a young age, but a portion of the population will stutter for the rest of their lives. And the best that they can do is manage it and build up the confidence to just keep waking up every day and going about life. It's painful to read about you and your brother. He's always loved you, but um, you had some difficulties, didn't you? My brother is my biggest champion. He is my rock. He's my best friend. And we have an incredible relationship as adults. Like a lot of brothers, we had a tough time as kids. Mm-hmm. And uh, a major part of this book is the story of how we got to where we are today, in which he would do anything for me and I would do anything for him. Did this book give you a chance to talk about things that maybe you hadn't? Yes, absolutely. 
I asked my parents and my brother a crazy question, which was, can I sit down with you and put a tape recorder between us? And can we talk about life? Just the totality of life, the good, the bad, and everything in between. And they said, yes. And it's, it was just an incredibly selfless act on their part. And they're relinquishing a portion of their privacy, not because they want to, but because they believe in me and they believe in this project and they know that this is a book that will hopefully help a lot of other people who stutter and their families. You write very openly about also struggling with um, depression and, and drinking. Drinking seemed to help your stutter, however, but I guess it wasn't good for depression, is it? One theory around the neurological component of stuttering is that it's partly a dopamine mediator disorder, getting down to that brain chemistry. And certain drugs certainly have an effect on the brain chemistry and on those neural pathways. Mm -hmm. Many people who stutter go through high school and college and they realize that drinking a couple beers makes it easier to talk. But that can obviously be a slippery slope. And part of this book is me talking with other folks about that and me reflecting on chapters of my life in which I may have used beer as a crutch. Do you feel you were depressed because you have a stutter or you were depressed because there's a lot in life to be depressed about and you don't need a stutter to be depressed? Research does indicate that mental health issues such as depression and anxiety and OCD are often comorbidities with issues such as stuttering. And part of this book is exploring that, but it's also exploring possible antidotes. There's a doctor out in California, Gerald McGuire, who has been working on a quote-unquote magic pill to one day potentially fix stuttering. 
And his primary motivation is because he's a person who stutters uh, and his older brother was as well. And his older brother uh, took his own life. And Gerald McGuire doesn't want anyone else to follow that path. You also say in this book that if you could swallow a pill to stop stuttering, you would you would hesitate. I think my answer to that question has changed over time. I think as a kid, as a teenager and in college, I would have taken a magic pill in a heartbeat. But as I've gotten older and I've been on this journey of making peace with my stutter, I don't view it as this major flaw anymore. I view it as a part of my life that's embedded in my identity and as a gift in a way because it's given me a lot of empathy it's given me a lot of life experience and it's made me a better listener and it's just made me curious about others and their experiences john hendrickson's book life on delay making peace with the stutter thank you so much for being with us thank you scott i really appreciate it This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the NPR Wine Club, featuring wines from around the world with NPR-inspired bottles like Weekend Edition Cabernet. Available to adults 21 or older. More at nprwineclub.org slash radio. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at AECF.org. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 34 degrees in Boston. Coming up on 9 o'clock as Weekend Edition Saturday continues. A chance of some rain mixing with snow today, but no accumulation expected and temperatures reaching the upper 30s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance. Auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com And Sony Pictures Classics presenting Living, a new film starring Bill Nye as a man who tries to turn his ordinary life into something wonderful, now playing in theaters. Recently on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, we asked Mariska Hargitay of Law & Order SVU if her job ever carried over to real life. Are you a good detective? Are you, like, good at finding your husband's lost phone, for example? Well, I found his first two mistresses, like this. (laughs) 
I'm Peter Sagal. This week, we'll ask author and MacArthur genius George Saunders if he uh, writes short stories in real life. Join us for the News Quiz from NPR. Today at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, will the U.S. government run out of money next week? The Treasury Secretary says extraordinary measures are needed. Does Congress agree? Then a volunteer with the sex education group in Appalachia explains why they're suspending operations. They um, found my family on social media. They would message them and say um, they were going to break in our house and kill us all. And like, I was scared. Later this hour, harassment against sex education groups. Also football playoffs, but is it back to the sport as usual? And Deshaun Charles Winslow's new novel revisits a small town in North Carolina torn by a murder. First our newscast, it's Saturday, January 14, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. On a day of thick, uh, thick cloud cover, Russian missiles hit the capital city of Ukraine, striking residential areas. The attacks come as Russian troops continue their training in nearby Belarus, and tensions rise over a possible spring offensive by the Russian military. NPR's Tim Mack has more from Ukraine. The mayor of Kiev, Vitaly Klitschko, reported explosions in multiple regions throughout the city. The strikes Saturday morning damaged at least 18 houses, according to the governor of the Kyiv region. He said there were no casualties. Anton Garashenko, an advisor at the Ukrainian Ministry of Internal Affairs, said, quote, there is information that a strike on Kyiv was made from Belarus territory. He added that Belarus's role in the war meant that its president, Alexander Lukashenko, was, quote, a war criminal just like Putin. Tim Mack, NPR News, Kyiv. British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has confirmed plans to send some of the British Army's main battle tanks to Ukraine. Sunak's office issued a statement today saying Sunak pledged to provide the Challenger 2 tanks and other artillery systems after speaking with Ukraine's president. California Governor Gavin Newsom is urging residents to remain alert for the potential for more flooding. We're expecting about one to three um, inches of rain, mild to heavy uh, throughout the state. What makes this storm series so unique is it's not isolated by any stretch of the imagination. Remember, California's size of 21 state populations combined. California's waterlogged following a series of storms that has been walloping the state since late last month, causing flooding, power outages, and mudslides. At least 19 people have been killed in this uh, latest storm moving into the state this weekend. Communities along California's Salinas River remain under a flood warning as the river has risen almost 20 feet in some areas. From member station KAZU, Jonathan Linden reports that despite that rise, Many residents remain optimistic. The Salinas River is normally only about three feet deep, but as Northern California got hit with a series of storms over this week, the river has risen. Mike McThigh lives near the Salinas River in Spreckles. What was projected did not actually happen. Originally, local officials feared a repeat of a 1995 storm that flooded highways and cut off access to the region. 
But so far, McThay says things are looking pretty good. And at this point, it looks like water has hit its peak and is recessing. The region is expecting more storms over the weekend, but not as severe as those that came earlier this week. For NPR News, I'm Jonathan Linden. Cleanup efforts underway in parts of the south, battered by Thursday's deadly storms that spun off suspected tornadoes. At least nine people were killed and thousands remain without power today in Alabama and Georgia. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Teachers in Melrose have voted to go on strike Tuesday if they do not get a new contract. The job action was approved by over 99 percent of Melrose Education Association members who voted yesterday. Teachers are demanding more pay and demanding what they say are better working conditions. A strike would close schools and would close after-school programs, extracurriculars, and sports practices. The mayor's office says it is willing to continue negotiations this weekend to reach an agreement. Massachusetts Congressman Richard Neal says he hopes lawmakers approve raising the federal debt ceiling, as Biden administration officials are warning of the consequences of a possible default. Alden Bourne reports. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen notified Congress the U.S. will reach its statutory debt limit on Thursday. Some Republicans have said they want to see spending cuts before agreeing to raise it. Congressman Neal took issue with that. The debt ceiling issue should not be demagogued. We pay our bills. It's the full faith and credit of the United States. While Republicans took control of the House in January, Neal says their margin is narrow, and that could mean the two sides have to work together on the debt ceiling and other issues. The House is so divided. I mean, they are literally up by four votes. So I think that there ought to be a measure of opportunity here with both sides as well. With the Republican takeover, Neal lost his chairmanship of the powerful Ways and Means Committee. He remains the top Democrat on the panel. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Alden Bourne. The city of Brockton is in line for a state grant to install 31 electric vehicle charging stations across the city. Brockton's getting $198,000 in Green Communities grant money from the Department of Energy Resources. Brockton Mayor Robert Sullivan says the charging stations will make the transition to electric vehicles easier and help the city reduce harmful emissions. It's 34 degrees in Boston, a chance of some rain mixing with snow this morning, little or no accumulation expected. Cloudy the rest of the day and highs in the upper 30s. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include PBS with Zora Neale Hurston, claiming a space from American Experience, a new biography of the influential author and anthropologist, Tuesday at 9, 8 central on PBS. Weekend edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thanks for being with us. Financial markets have long assumed the U.S. government can always be counted on to pay its bills. That faith could soon be tested. The federal government's about to bump up against its $31 trillion borrowing limit. House Republicans say they won't vote to raise the debt ceiling unless they get spending cuts or other concessions. NPR Scott Horsley joins us. Scott, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning, Scott. When is this coming to a head? 
The exact deadline is uncertain, but it's not too far off in the distance. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen sent a letter to congressional leaders yesterday saying she expects to hit the debt ceiling on Thursday when the government's holding a big Treasury auction. Now, she can buy some time by raiding retirement funds. That's kind of like digging under the couch cushions to find cash for the pizza guy. But that only works for so long. So sometime around the middle of this year, possibly as early as June, lawmakers will either have to raise the debt limit or else the government won't be able to pay all the bills that Congress has run up. And a default like that could be really destabilizing. If markets can't depend on the U.S. government to pay its bills, all bets are off. Raising the debt ceiling is something lawmakers uh, have to do every year or two. It's more challenging this time, though, isn't it? It is. I mean, this is always a fraught vote. Nobody likes to vote to okay more government debt. And there's been plenty of posturing by lawmakers in both parties under the guise of fiscal responsibility. But what makes people particularly nervous this time around is you have a small faction of Republicans in the House who have shown they're not afraid to blow things up to get what they want. Uh, That's why it took 15 rounds of voting just to elect Kevin McCarthy as Speaker. McCarthy told Sean Hannity on Fox, House Republicans plan to use the debt ceiling vote as a bargaining chip to extract some concessions on things like spending cuts. We think if you had a child and you gave them a credit card and they kept hitting the limit, do you just increase the limit or do you change their behavior? This is our moment to change the behavior to make sure that hardworking taxpayer that we're not wasting their money. Now, significantly, House Republicans did not take that position when President Trump was in office. They raised the debt limit three times during that period without much fuss, even as the government was adding about $8 trillion in debt. Uh, As Democratic Senator Ron Wyden complained yesterday, deficits are only a problem when a Democrat's in the White House. Do we know what President Biden plans to do about the debt limit? Biden argues that it's Congress's responsibility to pay these bills. Uh, The president's had some pretty good economic news lately. Uh, The job market's strong. Inflation eased up a bit last month. And White House spokeswoman Karine Jean-Pierre says the president doesn't plan to jeopardize any of that by negotiating over the debt ceiling. It's not and should not be a political football. This is not political gamemanship. This should be done without conditions. Now, if Congress wants to cut spending in the future, lawmakers could obviously do so. But the White House says it's wrong to walk away from the bills that the government has already incurred. That's not putting yourself on a fiscal diet. That's just ducking out on the dinner tab. Scott, what's this mean for us? So far, markets are assuming this is going to get worked out, and historically it does. But, you know, even if the government manages to avoid a default, uh, cutting it close can carry a price tag. The last time this came down to the wire, back in 2011, the stock market tumbled. That hit people's retirement savings. And the federal government saw its credit rating downgraded for the first time in history. So this kind of brinkmanship can actually result in higher borrowing costs, which only adds to the government's debt. And Pierre Scott Horsley, thanks so much. You're welcome. The U.S. Justice Department is in the middle of politics, whether it wants to be or not. This week, Attorney General Garland appointed a special counsel to investigate how classified documents were found at President Joe Biden's home and private office. That's two months after a different special counsel began to look into how top-secret materials ended up in former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort. NPR Justice Correspondent Carrie Johnson joins us. Carrie, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning, Scott. What can you tell us about what moved the Attorney General to launch this investigation that could conceivably see President Biden interviewed by the FBI? 
Merrick Garland says there are extraordinary circumstances here. Here's what we know so far. Biden's lawyers found a small number of secret documents where they didn't belong in early November and then found another batch in December and then one more document this week. So it hasn't been a smooth process. The attorney general said appointing an outside prosecutor would be good for transparency and accountability. And that's been a theme we've heard all along from Merrick Garland, starting with his first day at work nearly two years years ago. Here's what Garland told justice employees back in March of 2021. The only way we can succeed and retain the trust of the American people is to adhere to the norms that have become part of the DNA of every Justice Department employee. And about those norms, Garland described them this way. Those norms require that like cases be treated alike that there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for friends and another for foes. In other words, the same standard for everyone. Gary, how is this investigation different from the one that's looking into how classified materials ended up in Donald Trump's Florida home? Well, for one thing, the Justice Department takes the position that a sitting president cannot be indicted, but a former president might be. Biden's White House says he didn't know about the documents and that having them at home was a mistake. In the Trump case, the FBI got a search warrant to get the papers after months of back and forth with Trump's lawyers, and Trump himself has been all over the map about what he knew about the top secret documents in Florida. It's clear he didn't want to hand some of them over to the National Archives, though. Jack Smith, the special counsel in the Trump probe, hasn't tipped his hand publicly about what he might do next there. And some of Biden's aides have already been interviewed, and they're likely to be interviewed all over again by the new special counsel, Robert Hur. It's possible the FBI will want to ask Joe Biden some questions, too. Carrie, I'm trying to imagine what the next cabinet meeting might look like <laughs> uh, with the attorney general and the president at the same table. How could this affect the president's relationship with the Justice Department? Well, the White House says it's cooperating with Justice Department investigators, and DOJ did not notify Biden in advance before appointing a special counsel this week. The attorney general did not discuss any of this while he was traveling with the president in Mexico either. I'm told Garland had already made up his mind on the special counsel before that trip. The attorney general has said that running the DOJ is like coming home for him. Scott, he worked there decades ago. His sister worked there. His closest friends worked there. And more than 35 of his former law clerks worked there. So protecting the integrity of that institution is paramount to Merrick Garland. Is there an example of the White House and Justice Department coming together? Absolutely. Just yesterday, the DOJ issued a new rule related to firearms. It's part of a bigger effort to crack down on gun violence all over the country. It's just one of many areas where the White House and the Justice Department continue to collaborate despite the special counsel appointment. NPR's Justice Correspondent Gary Johnson, thanks so much. Happy to be here. Many environmentalists were disappointed to hear this year's United Nations Climate Conference will be presided over by an oil executive. COP28 will be in the United Arab Emirates. They get to choose their pick. Sultan Al-Jaber spoke today at an energy forum in Abu Dhabi. NPR's Aya Batrawi joins us from the conference. Aya, we hear the noise in the background. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, Scott. How could this appointment affect climate talks? 
So Al Jaber is the CEO of Abu Dhabi's state-owned oil company, Adnoc, but he's also led a renewable energy company, and he's been involved in COP summit negotiations for years as the country's climate envoy. But despite his background in clean energy, his role as head of one of the world's biggest oil companies is drawing criticism from environmentalists. They say it's a conflict of interest and a cause for concern as he presides over these complex talks to reduce carbon emissions. Um, but a CEO, a key part of his mandate is to keep pumping oil. Um, and that forms the backbone of this country's economy. So that's at odds with international efforts to limit warming from heat trapping gases like carbon dioxide and methane. Did he talk about that today? He did. But as the newly named president of the UN climate talks this year, he was more nuanced in tone than in past speeches where he would openly call for more investments in oil and gas. Here's some of what he said today at the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Forum in Abu Dhabi. We are way off track. The world is playing catch-up when it comes to the key Paris goal of holding global temperatures down to 1.5 degrees. And the hard reality is that in order to achieve this goal, global emissions must fall 43% by 2030. So this aligns with scientific studies that say to do this, the world has to rapidly phase out fossil fuels. But Al Jaber's view is that as long as the world runs on hydrocarbons, the solution isn't to immediately replace them, but to make them less carbon intensive. Here he is again. We'll work with the energy industry on accelerating the decarbonization, reducing methane, and expanding hydrogen. Let's keep our focus on holding back emissions not progress. Yeah, so basically there's no indication the UAE is backing off on its long-term plans of pumping more oil and gas. And other major producers like Saudi Arabia and Qatar note that plastic and even the clothes we wear are byproducts of fossil fuels. So the transition is going to take time. Do these oil producing countries acknowledge that the world is, is trying to move away from fossil fuels? I mean, absolutely. Saudi Arabia and the UAE, they want to profit from this industrial scale transformation toward clean energy. And they're investing hundreds of billions of dollars in renewable energy. They've committed to net zero, vowing to offset and cut their emissions in the coming decades. But this only applies to emissions within their own borders and not to how their oil is being used in countries like China and India. So environmentalists say they don't accept that. And even Al Jaber himself acknowledged, as you heard, countries are moving way too slow and cutting down carbon emissions. So global temperatures are rising. It will take years to reverse this. And it's impacting food and water security right here in the Middle East, where some of the world's hottest temperatures are being recorded. NPR's Aya Petrawi, thanks so much. Thanks, Scott. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 918. And ahead on Weekend Edition Saturday, you'll get the story from Dallas on a small nonprofit focusing on auto repair because car troubles can set off a financial crisis for low-income people. Also, a music festival in Caracas, Venezuela, is pioneering a new way for artists to express their creativity. That and more coming up on Weekend Edition. WBUR occasionally gives you the chance to win prizes in conjunction with our fundraising. You are not required to make a donation to win a prize. Employees of WBUR and associated entities are not eligible for drawings or contests. For complete rules, go to WBUR.org.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Elizabeth Bain of Commonwealth Standard Realty, providing guidance and advice to buyers and sellers throughout greater Boston. More at elizabethbainhomes.com. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. House Republicans have launched an investigation into the Justice Department's handling of improperly stored classified documents linked to President Biden. The House Judiciary Committee, led by Jim Jordan, is demanding documents and communications. As cleanup efforts get underway in parts of the South, rocked by suspected tornadoes, officials in California are warning of more stormy weather this weekend. A series of storms since late last month has left at least 19 people dead. And Friday the 13th turned out to be a lucky day for a lottery player in Maine. Mega Millions says a ticket purchased in Maine matched last night's winning numbers for the more than $1.3 billion jackpot, the second largest Mega Millions prize ever. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, supporting creative people and effective institutions committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. More information is at macfound.org. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, working to harness the power of research to make a difference in the lives of children, teens, and young adults for more than 80 years. Learn more at wtgrantfdn.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. People in Alabama this weekend are mourning and turning to recovery after thunderstorms and tornadoes hit that state and Georgia on Thursday. More than half a dozen people died. Troy Public Radio's Kyle Gassett joins us now from Montgomery. Kyle, thanks for being with us. Good morning, Scott. You were in Otago County. Uh, Alabama yesterday, 35 miles north of Montgomery. Uh, This is where, unfortunately, most of the fatalities happened. Please tell us what you saw. Scott, I was in Old Kingston, the part of the county that was hit the worst. It was a formerly wooded area, and now those trees are almost completely destroyed, along with many houses and cars. When I got there, it was very cold and windy. I saw all these bonfires, which I later realized were the trees the storm had blown down being burned. One of the bonfires was in front of Cindy and John Cox's house. On Thursday, they had just come home from a doctor's visit when the alarm sounded. Cindy says they got into their safe place, and that's when she heard the tornado overhead. That is true. What they say, it does roar like a train. Kyle, how did the Coxes come through the storm? Well, Scott, Cindy was understandably scared. I was really upset in my closet and on my chair, and... And feeling that shake and hearing that roar, you just hope it don't take the roof with it. But the Coxes say they're grateful because they came out alive with little damage to their house. Some of their neighbors didn't make it. Kyle, for those of us who are in other parts of the country, how common are tornadoes in Alabama in January? They're common, but this type is not. I spoke with meteorologist Gerald Satterwhite, and he said while tornadoes happen in Alabama in January, one this deadly and able to go the distance on the ground that this one went is rare. The average is around five miles or so, and uh, this tornado is going to be much higher than that. Uh, We could be looking at, you know, 50 miles or more. He says debris from this tornado shot up into the air as high as 15,000 feet. 
And Kyle, I understand the emergency alert the National Weather Service gave for the storm uh, is also rare. Yeah, when the storm got to Otaga County, the Weather Service issued a tornado emergency alert, which was new to me. Satterwhite explained that this designation came about in the 90s to describe situations in which a severe threat to human life is imminent or ongoing. And one of the first places the tornado struck was Selma, uh, a city, of course, that is rich in the history of the civil rights movement. And traditionally, Selma holds events to commemorate Martin Luther King Jr. Day, which is on Monday. Do we know if the city can still do that? Well, Scott, Selma took a hard hit from the storm. No fatalities were reported there, thankfully. But schools were closed yesterday, and there's just debris everywhere. Fire rose to Ray, who for the past 30 years has organized the annual bridge crossing commemorating the 1965 Bloody Sunday March for voting rights, called Selma a war zone. The thing about this storm, it didn't discriminate. Uh, you have um, low-income communities hit hard. You have middle-class communities hit hard. You have the white community hit hard. You have the black community hit hard. You know, Scott, Dr. King spent a lot of time in Selma and participated in the march to the state capitol in Montgomery. Therese says that as destructive as the storm was, Selma still plans to hold its annual march to the foot of the Edmund Pettus Bridge on Monday. Troy Public Radio's Kyle Gassett. Thanks so much, Kyle. Thank you, Scott. Sex education in parts of Appalachia stretches, stresses abstinence. Nonprofit group there that offered a more comprehensive approach has now suspended operations after its members received violent threats. NPR's Maria Godoy reports it's part of a broader backlash against sex ed that's taking place across the country. It's a sunny Saturday afternoon in Big Stone Gap, Virginia, a picturesque Appalachian mountain town of 5,200 people. Outside the local visitor center, crowds have gathered to attend a festival for the area's artists and activists. A college student stops at an information booth for a group called Sexy Sex Ed. The table is covered with condom packages with the word consent written across the front. Shaylin runs the group. How are you? I love your makeup. You're welcome. So have y'all heard about Sexy Sex Ed before? Sexy Sex Ed is a nonprofit with a cheeky, irreverent approach to sex education. They do workshops and attend events like this one throughout Southern Appalachia. But this is the group's last event, at least for now. That's because this past year, they were the target of a harassment campaign. We were flooded with thousands of death threats. That's why NPR is only using first names for Shaylin and her colleagues. Here's Shaylin. It was threatening, it was scary, it was anxiety-inducing. The barrage of harassment started in March when conservative activist Christopher Rufo criticized the group on Twitter, among other platforms. He accused the group of offering summer workshop courses for children that discussed graphic sexual practices. Other conservative activists also weighed in. Shaylin says those attacks misrepresented what they taught and to whom. They put their own spin on it to make it seem as if we were hosting an in-person summer camp with five-year-olds when in reality the, the summer camp was virtual and nobody under the age of 16 attended the summer camp. So it was completely taken out of context. Rufo told NPR in an email that 16-year-olds are still minors and that the group has a very different definition of age appropriate than most parents. He accused the group of, quote, doing something way outside the mainstream. The criticisms unleashed a torrent of abuse on social media and in real life. 
It was really bad. That's Kirsten, a 21-year-old volunteer educator with Sexy Sex Ed from rural West Virginia. She was one of the people directly targeted. They um, found my family on social media. They would message them and say um, they were going to break in our house and kill us all. And, like, I was scared. Like, I was um, afraid that someone would show up at my house. I was worried for my family. At her workplace, Kirsten's boss said she got calls and emails accusing Kirsten of being a pedophile. In Whitesburg, Kentucky, the mayor's office confirmed it also received calls complaining about sexy sex ed, which had previously held a workshop in town. Similar calls inundated a local Appalachian community fund that was sexy sex ed's fiscal sponsor. As a result, the fund ended its relationship with the group. Nora Gelbern is with Advocates for Youth, a national sexual health and rights nonprofit. She says since spring of last year, they've seen a surge in harassment and disinformation campaigns against sex ed providers across the nation. Gelpern charges right-wing groups with stoking fears among parents. She says one strategy often used by both conservative politicians and advocacy groups is to take what's being taught out of context. So they might take some topic, say it's being taught at an absolutely inappropriate grade level, which it was never being taught there to begin with, but it leads parents to be really nervous or afraid. She says that's especially true when it comes to sex education offered in public schools. Gelpern says many sex educators across the country are now scared to share even basic information, like where to get contraception. I've heard from a lot of teachers a lot of reluctance to refer kids to a Planned Parenthood health center, a health department, uh, making sure where they know what their rights are around, even if you're under 18, you're legally able to access contraception. You don't need a parent's permission to go into a drugstore and buy condoms. We're dealing with that a, a great deal, unfortunately. The lack of comprehensive sex education has particular implications in places where affordable contraception can be hard to get and where abortion is also illegal. That includes the parts of Appalachia where Sexy Sex Ed operates. Kentucky, West Virginia, and Tennessee have among the highest teen pregnancy rates in the country. Dr. Rebecca Rolston grew up in Appalachian, Tennessee. She now teaches at Harvard Medical School and has researched sex education policies. I think the more serious implications here are that people are not going to be using birth control or contraceptives appropriately or at all. And so then for those people who don't want to become pregnant, um, they then have very few options. There's a sizable body of research showing that comprehensive sex education can increase the use of contraception among teens and delay when they first have sex. It's also been linked to lower teen pregnancy rates. Shailen says she's seen from her own experiences growing up in rural Kentucky how difficult people's lives can get when they don't have good sex education. This is information that definitely could have saved my friends and me a lot of unnecessary anxiety uh, being teenagers. How many people did you know in high school with kids or who got pregnant? There was a lot. (laughs) There were a lot. Shailen, who's now 26, says these kinds of experiences inspired her to become a sex educator in the first place. But for now, Shailen is folding up her sex ed information table for the last time. She says Sexy Sex Ed is taking a break until they can figure out how to operate safely. Maria Godoy, NPR News. And now it's time for sports.
Wild card weekend in the NFL. The Australian Open opens and an Olympic doping controversy continues. NPR's Tom Goldman joins us. Tom, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning. Uh, the NFL playoffs begin today, six games uh, on the schedule. But it's not just business as usual. The Buffalo Bills play the Miami Dolphins tomorrow, and those are two teams whose seasons have been rocked and saddened by serious on-field injuries to two-star players. Yeah, it's ironic, isn't it, Scott, that these two are meeting, um, of course, the Bills with DeMar Hamlin, whose terrifying cardiac arrest actually has had a happy ending. You know, he's home recovering now. The Bills are nearly two touchdown favorites over Miami. Big part of that is because the Dolphins quarterback, Tua Tungavailoa, won't play tomorrow, still recovering from a third concussion since September. Scott, I talked to renowned neurosurgeon and concussion expert, Dr. Julian Bales. He consulted with the Dolphins on two to a situation, he thinks it's definitely appropriate to keep Tua out of action at this point. If you have three or more concussions in a finite period of time, then we believe the risk for more prolonged, more serious, long-term effects, all of that increases. Now, Dr. Bales thinks that three or more concussion threshold is a time to, in his words, stop and consider, which many believe Tua should do, even though he's only 24. The uh, Australian, Open, Australian Open starts tomorrow. Novak Djokovic is back this year. Still unvaccinated, as far as we know. <laughs> what, do you, uh, what do you look for in the men's tournament? Yeah, unvaccinated, but he won't be deported this year like he was last year since the Australian government has relaxed its COVID rules. Um, Djokovic is one of the favorites as he tries to win a 10th Australian Open. He's helped by the fact that Spain's Carlos Alcaraz, the 19-year-old who took men's tennis by storm last season, he's out with an injury. The other great Spaniard, the legend, Rafa Nadal, he's the top seed and the defending champ, but you know, he hasn't looked sharp recently. He's always battling injuries. No, what he already says about you. What do you mean he hasn't looked sharp? But go ahead. All right. <laughs> and he's got a really tough draw, starting with a highly anticipated first-round match against a rising player from the U.K., 21-year-old, six-foot-four left-hander Jack Draper. Uh, women's side, no Serena. Uh, and uh, no defending champ, Ash Barty, but lots of intrigue, right? Yeah, there is. You know, top-ranked Iga Sviantek, number two, Ons Jabor, they lead the way. Um, the U.S. is well-represented with Jessica Pagula and Coco Goff. One to watch, Scott, six-foot-tall Arena Sabalenka of Belarus. She's an aggressive, powerful player, and she's beaten the world's top-ranked players already. Finally... Any resolution in the uh, doping scandal that rocked figure skating during the Winter Olympics? Not really. There's a new development, though. The Russian anti-doping agency basically exonerated Russian teenage star skater Kamila Valieva, who tested positive for a banned drug before the Beijing Olympics, but was allowed to compete at the Games. The World Anti-Doping Agency is expected to appeal, which will drag this case out even more. You know, Scott, Really too bad for the skaters in the Olympic team event, which Valieva yeah. helped Russia win. The skaters from the U.S. and Japan, they finished second and third. They still haven't gotten their medals because that event's on hold because of Valieva's doping case. Now, once it's resolved, those Olympic competitors will get their medals, but, you know, they'll always have missed that proud podium moment in Beijing. Yeah. NPR's Tom Goldman, thanks so much. You're welcome.
Can you name the engineer, geologist, and weather forecaster who might play a role in stemming climate change? Here's a hint. Tiny little body, furry paws, and a smush tail. Beavers! Later today on All Things Considered, the new book, Beaverland. You can tune in by telling your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. And you're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Ancient Rome wasn't built in a day, and some of its architectural marvels have lasted longer than most of us can fathom, like B.J. Lederman, who writes our theme music. Consider if anything you've seen built in your lifetime would be standing nearly 2,000 years from now, like the Colosseum and Pantheon. The Romans apparently had a secret sauce, a blend of concrete that was a bit of a mystery until now. Admir Masich is a professor of civil and environmental engineering at MIT. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for this invitation. What did you find when you looked into this uh, durable blend of concrete? We found that there are key ingredients in ancient Roman concrete that lead to a really outstanding uh, functionality property in the ancient mortar, which is uh, self-healing. Self-healing? How so? So self-healing means that basically there are specific uh, way how Romans mixed their key ingredients, namely lime, volcanic ash, and aggregates uh, together with water. They uh, mixed using this technique that is called hot mixing. Basically mix heats up, up to, you know, 80, 90 degrees C. So equivalent of uh, 180 degrees Fahrenheit, that, uh, that is really unusual. You know, we, in modern time, uh, we, we mix uh, to cold mixing, if you want to call it like that, due to hot mixing and creation of these tiny granules of lime uh, due to hot mixing. Eventually, uh, you create a mechanism that, that, that just naturally goes and uh, fills the crack with the material and uh, prevents water to flow and and propagation of the crack. That's amazing. I mean, it sounds almost like uh, partly what the human body does. Exactly. We we like to compare it with the self-healing of our bones, indeed. Why did the exact nature of this composition elude us until your research just now? You know, engineers and scholars uh, describe the formula of how to make a Roman concrete. And then, of course, uh, they describe a volcanic ash as a key ingredient, this uh, miraculous uh, addition to a traditional lime-based mortar. And we just uh, ignore the lime as a key ingredient of, of a Roman concrete mix. Now, you point out that this ancient Roman concrete not only lasts centuries, but it would reduce the carbon footprint of making new concrete. Yeah, I mean, uh, if we are able to build the uh, next infrastructure that lasts uh, longer, this will require less uh, uh, material and on the long run uh, will uh, eventually uh, require less energy to maintain and and, uh, eventually will uh, correspond to less emissions. And so that's the first step where we we create a material that eventually is uh, part of a solution instead of being a problem. Admir Masich is a professor of civil and environmental engineering at MIT, and his team's research has just been published in the journal Science Advances. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you very much. But I know wrong.
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. A major water main break on Heath Street in Boston has caused flooding on several streets in Jamaica Plain. The Boston Fire Department has deployed high water rescue vehicles. Workers have been checking the houses in the area for potential evacuation of residents. The fire department also says the water main break has buckled parts of Heath Street. A year of service event is getting underway. At the Faneuil Hall kickoff this morning, Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey is joining 8th grade Project 351 ambassadors. They represent the state's 351 cities and towns. Service projects will take place throughout the Boston area this afternoon. In sports tonight at the Garden, the Bruins host the Maple Leafs and the Celtics take on the Hornets in Charlotte tonight. It is 34 degrees in Boston, a slight chance of some rain around this morning, a cloudy Saturday with highs in the upper 30s, a slight chance of rain tonight, overnight lows around 30. Then tomorrow, a slight chance of snow. After that, a slight chance of rain and snow. After that, a chance of just snow. Little or no accumulation expected. And Sunday's temperatures in the mid-30s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. More at PlymouthRock.com. This is Ira Glass of This American Life. Every week on our show, we apply the tools of journalism to stories that are so small and personal, journalists normally would not cover them. It was my forged signature, and it was my boyfriend's handwriting. Or we look at stories that are big. Refugees, school segregation in America, the split in the Republican Party. Climbing out from the smoking ruin and say, anybody else alive around here? And find surprising personal stories there, too. This American Life. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Progressive Insurance, home of the Name Your Price tool, so drivers can see coverage options at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Car repairs are never convenient, and for many people, they can also create a major financial predicament. In Dallas, reporter Christopher Connolly from member station KERA has the story of a small charity that fixes the vehicles that could otherwise drive their owners into debt. About a decade ago, Manuel Tellez's truck was in pretty bad shape. It was constantly overheating. It was just one thing after another, and I didn't have any money to get it repaired. So what I did is I went to a payday lender to take out a loan. Tejas borrowed a little over $1,000, he says. With fees and interest, he wound up paying $7,000 back to the company. And making those payments at the payday lending store, he noticed something. A lot of folks would come in to take out payday loans to pay for an auto repair. 
And that got me to thinking, well, is there anyone or any organization here in North Texas that can help people who need this kind of help? And it turned out, no, there actually isn't. The idea lodged in his head for years. And by 2018, Tellez had formed a new nonprofit. It's called Auto Care Haven. And the mission is simple. Fix vehicles for low-income drivers who can't afford repairs and can't afford to have their car break down. In the Dallas-Fort Worth area, nearly 40% of households report having difficulty paying their usual expenses. That's according to the Census Bureau's latest Household Pulse survey. And more than a third were struggling to pay their rent or mortgage. What we're really providing is hope. Because when your vehicle goes down, especially if you don't have the means if you're living paycheck to paycheck, you're usually just kind of, you know, in despair. Auto Care Haven is still a small operation. Tellez runs it on top of his full-time marketing job, and the group has had to turn off its online application portal from time to time because needs overwhelmed capacity. But he's hoping it'll grow in 2023. At a recent pop-up event in South Dallas, mechanics from Auto Care Haven spent the day topping off automotive fluids and giving out advice. You probably have a small oil leak as well because you got oil all over your motor. Mechanic Darren Brown says the charity doesn't do cosmetic work. It also won't rebuild engines or transmissions because it's just too expensive and labor-intensive. Other than that, they'll tackle pretty much any issue. AutoCare pays for parts, pays for labor, pays for mechanics. You don't do nothing to sit back and wait for it to be fixed. And having your vehicle fixed for free to get you back on the road? It helps out a whole lot. Last year, Tim Hale's minivan needed a new water pump. It was the latest in a string of mechanical problems on the red nine-year-old Toyota Sienna. It was going to cost me another, like, thousand dollars to get the water pump done. And we just did not have it. Hale is on disability and works part-time. His wife, Tamra, works at a pharmacy, and she also drives for Uber. So having the minivan out of commission meant they were losing income. So when the couple heard about Auto Care Haven from a friend, Hale applied. It was a godsend that they come in and fixed it. Fixing a broken water pump doesn't fix a family's financial struggles, but it can help them steer clear of an even bigger setback. For NPR News, I'm Christopher Connolly in Dallas. We're going to return now to West Mills, North Carolina. That's the setting of Deshaun Charles Winslow's first novel called In West Mills. It won a passel of awards. Now, it's 1976, and Dr. Marion Harmon, the only black physician in town, has been found shot to death alongside her brother, Laz, and her sister, Marva, in their home. Many suspect Olympus Seymour, known as Limp, the half-brother who lived next door, but the white authorities in town don't seem much interested, and it falls to Joe Wright, who's just moved back, to ask some hard questions and look for the killer. Decent People is the title of this new novel. Deshaun Charles Winslow joins us now. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Joe has been in Harlem for decades and has become a fixture of life there. Yes. Working, living, having husbands. <laughs> what brings her back to West Mills? Retirement is sort of the primary reason. She decides that she wants to move back south. It was where she grew up. Well, part of her childhood was there, and she was 
snatched away abruptly for reasons that she doesn't learn until the end of the novel. When she goes to purchase a home, she reunites with with Limp, and she decides that she's going to go back home and marry him. So that's what takes her back. And, And why does community suspicion fall on Limp in this murder? Because... Well, he's their half-brother, but also there's a history of them never having gotten along or being close. And more immediately, he has really been angry with Marion. Um, He asked her for a loan, and not only did she decline, you know, she made fun of him needing the money and humiliated him. And he was very vocal about that to some people in town. Well, tell us about about West Mills. And of course, I have to ask, you grew up in Elizabeth City, Mm -hmm. North Carolina. Boy, you must get tired of being asked this, but is West Mills Elizabeth City? No, West Mills is based on a neighboring town called South Mills, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And that is where my mother was born and raised. Well, tell us about West Mills, the place that you've created. It's the novel set in 1976. It's a small town and Everyone truly knows everyone. It doesn't mean everyone communicates, but people know who you are, who your family is, how long your family has been around. They can spot a an outsider right away. You know, they, mm-hmm. they know people's cars and faces they've never seen before. And it is a segregated town. You know, the canal, it's a color line. Mm-hmm. Um, and people would largely stick to that that rule. And and what brings you back there for your novels? Well, part of it is logistics. Um, when I decided to write Decent People and I decided that I wanted to reuse the Lovings, uh, Eunice, Breezy, and their son, Leroy, mm-hmm. I was like, either I'm going to move them to someplace else, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. or I'm just going to stick with the same setting. Yeah, Leroy was tugged on my heartstrings. I found myself very moved by him, you know. Yeah, he's a 14-year-old queer kid, and he's he's tortured. And, you know, well, I don't know that he's tortured so much that his, his mother is, you know. But he is um, a little bit of a pariah. But, you know, Leroy was actually happy. It, you know, it was... When people start to want to change him, that things start to go wrong. Yeah. Well, and he runs into people who think there's some kind of, uh, you know, oh, there must be some kind of treatment for for this. Right, right. Totally personal question, but I think you would agree that maybe your novels call out this question. Do you know what it's like to feel a little bit like Leroy? Oh, yeah, 100%. Probably not as in such a dramatic way. Fortunately, my parents never tried to have me fixed. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I'll take that back. I think my parents did in their own way try to have me changed. But I think it was not through any form of violence, or at least not physical violence. But I think I share a story with Leroy and a lot of my gay peers, people around my age range, I'm 43, where our parents do try to force us to do more masculine things around that age. But I was fortunate in that my parents sort of gave up in in that way. (laughs) They realized that I just wasn't going to do it and they weren't going to spend the 
use resources on it. Do you, do you feel, Mr. Winslow, as a novelist, that you have a responsibility at some point to give every character their chance to be understood? Yes. I'll say I don't know if it's a responsibility, but it's something that I choose to do. Because I could easily write a white man in the 70s in a town like this. I could easily make him a one-note monster. But I don't believe any human being is one-note. I don't know that it makes people all good, but I do think most human beings have something hidden away, (laughs) you know, that is kind. So I, I choose to try to show something good about every character, even if it's just one moment. Deshaun Charles Winslow's new novel is Decent People. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. If you're thinking of going to Venezuela, the travel guidance is unmistakable. Everyone in my band is American, and they're Googling Venezuela, and it's like, don't go. Everything just says, do not go. That's the musician Devendra Barnhart, Bonhart, who grew up in Caracas. But despite those warnings, Devendra Bonhart and over a dozen other musicians packed up their gear and headed to play an alternative music festival in that country recently. And Pierre's Isabella Gomez Sarmiento reports. Nestled in between the cool, cloudy hills of Caracas, the organizers of Cusica Fest welcomed over 10,000 people in December. That's Devendra Bonhart addressing the crowd. He tells them they're close to a very powerful place, the mountain range directly behind them. It's a landscape that's near and dear to his heart. He spent his early life here in Caracas. Bonhart moved to the U.S. as a teenager and visited Venezuela every few years. But in the time he's been a touring musician, he's never played a show in his home country until now. My experience is that it's been over 20 years, and every year we're playing Caracas. And it gets really close, and right at the last minute it falls apart. That's because of an ongoing socioeconomic crisis that's made getting by, finding necessities, difficult in Venezuela. The United Nations Refugee Agency estimates that over 7 million people have left the country since 2015 due to violence, food and medicine insecurity, and deteriorating public services. Bonhart, who still has family in Venezuela, addresses that reality earnestly in his music. The tumultuous state of the country has taken a toll on artists trying to move the culture forward. But there are people working to rebuild a creative scene, starting by bringing Venezuelan talent, like Bonhart, back. Maria Fernanda Burbano is one of the co-founders of Cusica Fest. For us, it's simply about making the music industry in Venezuela grow. Cusica Fest actually originated from an e-commerce platform. When sites like iTunes and Spotify were either difficult or impossible to access in Venezuela, Burbano and her partner set up a website where national bands could post their music and fans could buy it. Te 
Offline, Gusika grew by championing a live music scene across the country, eventually producing Gusika Fest with a lineup of more than two dozen performers. What we wanted was to give that knock on the table, like, hey, we're here. Venezuela is still a spot, even though the situation can be complicated. We're still here and always thinking of the artist and audience first. Sharing the stage with Devendra Bonhart this year was Rawayana, an alt-rock band with a melange of reggae, funk, and Caribbean rhythms. The band made a difficult decision to move out of Caracas at the height of the crisis. Six years went by before they played again in Venezuela, Acústica. Comparing to people or bands from different places in Latin America, we have like an extra layer to get into where we are. That's Rawayana lead singer Beto Montenegro speaking over a shaky Wi-Fi connection in Caracas. Part of being Venezuela is struggling with, with the infrastructure of the country. He doesn't just mean the unstable internet. He says it's also the bureaucracy that makes it harder to obtain passports and visas needed to tour. It's the political turmoil in the country, which Rawayana pokes at in their most recent album, Cuando los acéfalos predominan. For me, there's no reason to be one side or, or the other because it's very clear that, you know, going to the, the extreme left or extreme right, it, it's not the way. So what is the way? Montenegro says maybe there's a new path with festivals like Cusica helping empower younger generations to express themselves, even in the face of political instability and repression. A teenage fan approached him on the last day of Cusica. And he told me, like, Beto, you know, like, watching your life, it's been so inspiring. I, I have my band and we want to play with you in four or five years, something like that. The little kid said to me. What I couldn't believe was that I saw these kids. They were all, they basically created their own, like, hyper-individualistic culture. I didn't meet a single person that didn't have their own band or brand. Devendra Bonhart. And it was the most optimistic I've ever felt about Caracas my whole life. Burbano agrees. She says bands from other countries are already reaching out, following the success of Cusica Fest, for new opportunities to book shows in Venezuela. It's double the work, but it's always about moving forward and making things better. Because, she says, that also comes with double the payoff. La primera vez que te Isabela Gomez Armento, NPR News. Se abrió en mí. Y más tarde, más tarde, cuando renací en un tobogán hacia ti. My boyfriend's in This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Noom, a personalized weight loss program based in psychology for helping people change their habits and conquer their goals. Learn more at Noom, N-O-O-M dot com. 
and from the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from the William T. Grant Foundation at wtgrantfoundation.org. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me is next at 10 o'clock. The show features author George Saunders. Coming to WBUR City Space January 25th, historian and journalist Dart Adams and Danish rapper Slyman discuss their new book, Instead We Became Evil. For tickets, go to wbur.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington, The Art of Burning, a comedy exploring the love, rage, and responsibility that go with marriage and parenting in America. Now through February 12th, HuntingtonTheater.org. In my job, balance is really important. I'm Aisha Roscoe, host of Weekend Edition. So when I look at my old minivan, I'm balancing on the one hand, new car payment, and on the other, driving around for another year with that smell of spilled milk in the back. Whenever the balance tips for your old car, give it a chance to do one more good deed. Donate it to this station and turn it into the programs we all love. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. I'm here and now executive producer Carleen Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.